Good morning. As you were warned, uh, I am not Pastor Andrew. Uh, surprise, gasp. Uh, but uh, uh, even though my name is Andrew, I go by Andy, but uh, just uh, thankful for the opportunity to share the word. Um, just most of you know us. Uh, my wife and I, we've been married for 23 years, uh, one month and four days. Uh, we oversee the nursery ministry, so we're often back there. If you don't see us around, we're usually back uh, in that wing. Um, uh, we have four children. Uh, Caleb, 17, uh, often plays the drums. Ethan, 13, was up here on the bass. And then Nathan is six. And, I, and then Joanna is four. And uh, kids are just a blessing. And uh, so it's just a little bit about who I am uh, as I come to tell you what, uh, some things about God's Word. Uh, I am a trainer. Uh, my current role uh, outside of church is a trainer. And so I enjoy teaching and, and training. Uh, and it's really cool to see the light bulb go on. But there is nothing, there is nothing like teaching the Word of God and sharing uh, what God is teaching me and, and, and just sharing what God is doing in my life. And so just such a privilege to share the Word of God. And I hope and pray the Word of God is sweet uh, to you as well. So we're going to be digging into that, into the Word together. Again, just sharing some things God has been teaching me uh, this year especially. But Thanksgiving is coming. And on Thursday, you're going to get together. You're going to have this big old spread of food. You're going to have everybody around the table, and you're going to stop and you're going to thank God for the feast you are about to enjoy, right? So let's do that now. Before we feast on the Word of God, let's stop and pray and thank God for it. Uh, let's pray. God, your Word is truth. And as Jesus prayed for us in John 17, I pray that you would sanctify us through truth this morning, through your Word. May it be your words that are many, and let my words be few. Thank you for the privilege and opportunity we have to, to come here together and to meet and, and dig into what your word says. Thank you for the freedoms that we currently have. I pray you'd help us to enjoy them and take advantage of that and just to allow you to work in us. God, help us to plow up our fallow ground and to be good soil. I pray that your word would go forth, your spirit would work to apply it to our hearts and lives uh, not only today on a Sunday where it's easy to give intellectual assent to this, but also through the week when, when life gets real. Remind us of these truths, Lord. So give us a rich feast in the truths of your word this morning. And may we then go and be the church uh, this week. In Jesus' name, amen. So again, Thanksgiving is coming. And what are you looking forward to? And maybe a fun question might be, uh, what are some things that make your particular uh, Thanksgiving celebration unique? And probably some things are coming to your mind, and nine chances out of ten, you're probably thinking of food, right? Some unique foods. Uh, I grew up in eastern Pennsylvania, and we don't have uh, stuffing so much. We didn't eat a lot of stuffing, but we had, it was potato filling. And it's just like basically tricked out mashed potatoes, and it is so good. It's, it's just one of those things. And then the sweet potatoes, not what you guys have out here with like the marshmallows on top and stuff. That No. Uh, my dad makes these sweet potatoes with, with schwoop. Uh, it, we, we call it schwoop, and it's just, it's got the, it's like brown sugar and, and, and butter, and I don't know. He just, it's just, it's taste, it's, it's candy, basically. And uh, it's so good. And these are some of the things that make my families, uh, and as I grew up, uh, Thanksgiving's unique. 
Uh, and you can probably think of a bunch of them as well, whether it's food traditions or maybe it has to do with football or just family gatherings or whatever it is. Your celebration of Thanksgiving is different from mine. So when we, when we think about um, things that make us unique when it comes to our Thanksgiving celebrations, what makes us as Christians different? What makes our celebration of Thanksgiving different? Do we have any difference? Is there any difference in our basis for our thankfulness? And the answer is yes. And, and what is the difference? It is the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And so today I want us to talk about and think through uh, the gospel and consider how it should drive and be the foundation for our thankfulness. And we'll think about how that can then uh, help us to be thankful uh, for all the little things as well. So, right now, we live in a country, in a culture, in a world that is very focused on a number of things. We focus on rights and what we deserve, and there's a lot of living by our feelings and follow your heart. And the fact is, the world is wrong, and the world is broken. And the fact is, I am broken and wrong as well. I am broken. The world tries to fill this with all kinds of different things, trying to satisfy those longings and the brokenness and the emptiness with so many things. And some of them are interesting. Mindfulness is a big push in our world today. Mindfulness and just all these different things, trying to adjust our minds and our thinking. People have even done a, a cool thing, I thought, thankfulness journals. Not a bad idea to get into the habit of being thankful. There's all kinds of things. But is that all we have? Is the best hope we have self-help? Is it, is it within me to figure this out and find satisfaction and, and, and drum up this thankfulness. Uh, this year, uh, I would say just personally, has been a hard year for just me personally. Our families, we're doing good. Just I've struggled with a lot of things. There's some different challenges. I don't know about you, but we as a family really enjoyed quarantine. That was fun. Uh, I, I know it wasn't that way for everybody, but we had fun. We, we, we got to be, hang out as just a family. We weren't so busy, and we got time together. We forced us to be a little more creative with our time, and it was so much fun. And maybe it's just coming out of that time and getting back into the busyness again. But I have personally struggled with uh, a number of things, and just, just, uh, just things have come up. And, and life is hard, and mine are probably much smaller than yours. You're, you're dealing with things, but we are all dealing with things. We live in a broken world. And so what is the problem and what is the solution? Uh, there's a famous dead guy, G.K. Chesterton, I believe, uh, is credited with this. He once read a question in the newspaper. The question, newspaper, do we know what that is? Never mind. Um, the newspaper, and he decided to answer it. The question was, what is wrong with the world? What is wrong with the world? And G.K. Chesterton wrote in, and his reply was, dear sirs, I am. I am. <laughs> and what's wrong with the world. That is the ideal response. Not yelling at each other in 140 characters or yelling at each other from different sides of different things, but recognizing I am what's wrong with the world. I am broken. And so is everyone else. We are all on a level playing field. We are all broken in different ways. In fact, uh, I am actually the worst sinner I know. And Paul says that. I want to start with—we're uh, going to be all over the Bible. Uh, I, I get, get to teach and preach once, and so I went topical. I didn't grab a passage and go exegetically through it. But I, be, be Bereans and check these scriptures that we look at. Make sure that what I'm saying is in the Bible, what it says. 
But look at 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. 1 Timothy 1, 15. It would be page 991 in a pew Bible. If you're grabbing that one in front of you, feel free to do so if you don't have your Bible with you. Uh, but we're going to be all over the Bible this morning. And um, you notice there's no blanks. I apologize for that. There's no papers. That's, that's, that's me. Um, I, I didn't take or make the time to make blanks and such. But we're going to be all over the Word this morning. So just be ready. Get your pens ready. Write down the verses and check them out. But 1 Timothy 1.15 um, and there's a long—you could dig into this. It's really cool. Paul says he's like the least of the apostles, and then he's—there's this progression until even after he was saved, like, he eventually gets to this point. This is like towards the end. Uh, this is like what he says about himself. He says, 1 Timothy 1.15, the, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost— Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Uh, Alistair Begg, I like listening to his, his uh, program, uh, he, but he's, he has said, uh, Jesus didn't come into the world to make good people better, but to make dead men live. It's only when I recognize my brokenness that I am the chief of sinners. I'm the worst sinner I know. I live with my thoughts, my feelings, my own brokenness. I am the worst sinner that I know. It's only when we recognize our brokenness uh, that we can really understand the, forgive the forgiveness and grace that we have through God, through Christ. So I am the worst sinner I know. And my heart is wicked. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is deceitful. It's going to lie to me. My heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? We may be sitting and saying, well, I'm not that bad. Uh, but that's your heart lying to you. I am the worst sinner I know. Paul was the worst sinner he knows. As we recognize our brokenness, it starts with me recognizing, admitting, sitting under the weight of my sin. What are the consequences for being the worst sinner I know? If you've been in church for any length of time, you probably know Romans 6.23. Romans 6.23. So say it with me with just the first part. The wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. The consequences for what I've done, for being the worst sinner I know, is death. That's separation from God. This is not just what they deserve, whoever they are. It is what I deserve. I deserve death. Separation from God forever. In fact, let's take a look at that. What does that look like? Revelation Chapter 21, verse 8. Look at Revelation 21, 8. Uh, it's page 1041, if you're using the Pew Bible in front of you. Thank you to my wife for jotting down those numbers for me during the first service so I can share them with you. Revelation chapter 21, verse 8. What are the consequences of sin? By the way, it was the wages of sin. That's singular, right? It only takes one sin. I'm a pretty simple person. We'll talk about that here in a little bit. But Revelation 21, 8 says, But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and, and all liars, hmm, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. It's a fascinating list, right? It includes uh, some of the, the big ones, right? Things we consider big. But in God's eyes, any sin 
is enough to condemn us forever in hell. Even things like little white lies that don't exist. <laughs> They're just lies. They're nasty. They're ugly. It is in the face of God. And I'm, I'm in this list. I don't know about you. You're in this list too, right? If we're honest with ourselves, this is what I deserve. I am included in this list, and I deserve to be separated from God forever in the lake of fire. It, in the summertime, not now, it's a little cold, uh, but in the summer, if you were to go jump in a lake, what happens? You get pretty wet head to toe, right? So what happens if you were cast into a lake of fire? And I'm not going to pursue that imagery any further. But this is what I deserve. My sin is bad. I am the worst sinner I know, and I deserve to be separated from God. This is the punishment that I deserve. This is what you and I and everyone else in this world deserves. Hitler is not the standard for who or what is good or better than, and that makes you okay. Avoiding committing murder is not the standard. I've never killed anyone. That doesn't, that's not the standard. Them and their sins, whatever those are, they are not the standard. Romans 3.23 tells us what the standard is. Again, if you've been in, in church, a church like this for a long enough time, you know this verse. Say it with me. Uh, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. God's glory is the standard. God's perfection, his holiness is the standard. And we all fall short. Um, I'm, I used to be a little bit athletic, and I could probably jump 14, 15 feet out into the Grand Canyon, but I wouldn't make it. My son, I think, has surpassed me. We haven't raced in a long time. I think I still I beat him last time we actually raced. But he can probably jump farther than me, and some others might be able to jump even farther. But we all fall short. We all fall short, and we're not going to make it. And we all fall short of the standard, which is God's glory. And so you and I deserve God's wrath. And that is the only right that I could truly claim. Anything else is God's grace in my life. Of course, I don't want to claim that right. This is not a fun line of thought. This is not where we're thinking we're going on a Thanksgiving Sunday, right? But it is very important. We need to feel the weight of our sin so we can feel the relief, the forgiveness, the grace. Um, I'm not going to ask for a showing of hands, but uh, has anyone ever been pulled over by the police? Don't raise your hands. Probably a fairly common occurrence. How do you feel when you pull off the side of the road and those lights are flashing behind you? How do you feel? That weight of impending doom, I've blown it. Uh, that is that kind of feel, that's what we should feel when we think about our sin before a holy God who is perfect and just and has every right to cast me into hell, I should feel that weight of impending doom and, even, and then some. I deserve punishment. I deserve death. I deserve separation from God forever, for, forever in hell. I deserve nothing good. I don't deserve to eat tasty food on a Thanksgiving day. I don't deserve to have a, a, a family, uh, an awesome family. I don't deserve to have a church family like you all. I deserve nothing good. So what is the answer? Let's go to Romans chapter 7. Romans 7, page 944 in the Pew Bible. Romans 7, Paul talks about the, the challenge and the frustration. People want to do good. Uh, whether we know Christ or not, we struggle with this sin. 
uh, this sin problem. Before Christ, we try and earn our way to God and trying to earn his favor and, and, and all of that. And, uh, and it just doesn't work. And even as believers, we still struggle with indwelling sin. And so there's this challenge, this fight. And Paul talks about that all through Romans 7. <clears throat> and in verses 21 to 24, we're going to read verses 21 to 24 right now. Paul says this, so when I find it to be a uh, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Do we, anyone identify with that? Anyone just struggle? Sometimes, maybe not all the time. Sitting here on a Sunday morning, we all look good. Teen's looking good this morning. It's a dress-up day, I hear. Looking good. We can look good here, but in our hearts, and maybe on a Tuesday afternoon or a Thursday night or a Saturday morning, sometimes maybe, we just feel that weight. And we're so frustrated. And who can save me from the body of this death? And the verse doesn't, it doesn't end there. There's another verse. The answer is, when you feel this way, when you and I feel this way, because of my own sin, because of the world is blowing up around me and just losing its mind, who can save me? Verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the answer. One day he's going to solve all the external problems. He's going to come and make all things right. One day, everything sad will come untrue. Uh, everything wrong will be made right. Justice will be done. Jesus is going to come and make it right. But in the meantime, he offers me not health and wealth and feeling good, but he offers me something better, inner peace in the midst of the ups and downs of life. When we understand our sin and the forgiveness that is available through Jesus, it will lead us to thanks, like Paul says here. His first word, thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the starting point for being truly, genuinely thankful. Even in the worst of circumstances, because I have been forgiven and freed from my ultimate worst circumstance, my sin. I can be forgiven. So, so how does this work? How does that all work? That, that this happens. First of all, just to think about the fact that God offers us common grace, right? We deserve sin and hell. Uh, we, we, we are sinners. We deserve death and hell, separation from God forever. And the fact that he doesn't just cast us there right away when we commit our first sin, or we're actually born sinful, the Bible teaches. Is man naturally good or naturally sinful? The Bible teaches we're naturally sinful. And look around the world around us. It bears that out. Um, but God's common grace is so abundant. Uh, he gives us good things. I, anybody thankful that food tastes good? God could have just made it that food is food and you eat it to sustain yourself and then you do everything else. But no, there is good food. There is like Thanksgiving feasts and there's like beef jerky and there's like jalapeno peppers and those are things I like. Reese's peanut butter cups, the minis, they're, oh, you can go through a whole bag. What is your favorite? Are you thankful that God made, that is God's common grace that food tastes good. God's common grace is seen in that there are little things. The Bible says that it rains on the righteous and the unrighteous. There are good things happening to, to, to bad people, and there are bad things happening to good people. Well, let's, let's, the fact is there's no good people, by the way. Uh, there's none good, none righteous. We are all broken, but God gives us good things, and that is just a grace in itself. He has given us time in this world to live and enjoy, and that is a gift, and, and it is an opportunity then to know him. 
Uh, 1 Peter talks about that God is not slack concerning his promises, but he's, he's not willing that any should perish. He's giving us time to come to know him. He's giving our family and friends time to come to know him. That is his grace. And so then the knowing him portion, God has provided a remedy for my eternal estate. Uh, that that uh, revelation verse that we looked at, the remedy for that, God has taken care of that. Uh, turn to 2 Corinthians 5.21. Another verse you're probably uh, somewhat familiar with. 2 Corinthians 5.21. So uh, I get to teach uh, the trek, the junior hires on, uh, in Awana on Mondays. And on Monday, we talked about the fact uh, that, that Jesus was tempted in every way, yet without out sin. We're going to come to the verse here in a moment. God became flesh and dwelt among us, and he obeyed every time. Whatever your temptation is, your temptations are different than mine. Mine are unique to me. Yours are unique to you. We might have some in common, uh, but Satan knows how to attack and exploit them. <coughs> but when Satan tempted Jesus, Jesus stood up every single time. Jesus lived a perfect life. We do focus on his death, his burial, and his resurrection, and rightly so. But it is his life, his perfect obedience that earns my forgiveness. Um, it's, it's a cut and paste kind of thing. My record is full of sin, and his record was perfect, and he cut and pasted and, and swapped those. And that's what this verse talks about. He lived that perfect life. He was tempted in every way, like as we are, yet without sin. That's Hebrews 4.15. And look at 2 Corinthians 5.21. How does that work? <clears throat> For our sake, he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin. Jesus knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's that trading places. Jesus took our place. And how does that work? There's a book that we used as a family for family, uh, family Bible time several months ago now. We did it a while back when our older kids were younger. Uh, it's called The Lamb. And it really walked through this concept. It's really cool. It's, it, it's really encouraging for me to think through again. But uh, has anyone ever tried to read through the Bible and get stuck in, like, Leviticus? I did. I see a few hands going up. Right? It, it, it happens, right? Get back up. Try again. You can make it. Why do we have trouble going through Leviticus? Because as there are a lot of rules and laws about, like, sacrifices and, and just lists. And, but those animal sacrifices, it's fascinating. If you read through those animal sacrifices— uh, the ones for sin, they would bring the animal in and they would place their hands on the head of the animal. And, and, and they were symbolically passing their sins onto the animal. And then that animal would die for those sins. There was substitution, the passing of the sins onto the animal and the animal dying for those sins. And, and that is what Jesus did for us. And how do we get that? By faith, we don't have to sacrifice animals anymore. By faith, I can pass my sin on to Jesus. And, and he took everything. Um, the, the, the last song we sang there, right? Bearing all my sin and shame. Do you ever have, when you wake up in the morning, that's often when it happens, do you ever listen to yourself and your mind just gets running? Or sometimes during the day, you're just reminded 
you know, your, your, your sinful brain gets going or Satan reminds you of things. How many times are there things that you look back with regret on circumstances in life? And if I just would have done this, I can look back personally a few times and just like career-wise and different things. If I just would have done this, I could, I could be here. I could be there. I could be making this much money or whatever. There's so many things that are like regrets. And, and there's also things where I look back and I say, oh, I can't believe I did that to my family, my, my, this person. I hurt them. And, and we look back with regret on things that we've done. When I place my hands of faith on Jesus, he's taken it all. He died on the cross for all of that. And it is done. It is a one-time thing. He took that on the cross, and it is done. He, as a high priest, he sat down. Priests didn't sit down because their job was never done. All those animal sacrifices. But Jesus sat down because it was done. What did he say on the cross? It is finished. It's done. When I place my hands on the head of Jesus, and I, I place my sin on him. I trust you that you paid for my sin and my guilt and my shame and all my regrets. You took it all. doesn't change the consequences of some of my sin or, or the outcomes of some of the circumstances, but it changes my standing before God. God promises us not health and wealth. He promises us love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Those are internal fruit or evidence of the Spirit working inside of me in spite of my circumstances. And when I place my hands on the head of Jesus and, and trust Him as my Savior, it is all gone. It's all gone. Some people uh, still struggle with their sin. You don't know what I've done. God can never forgive me. I can never forgive myself. I want to think about it for a minute. Uh, I don't know about you. I do know about you. And you know about me. I've sinned a lot. Let's pretend that I figured this out, and, and I'm a pretty good person. I can, only, I can get away with just one sin per day. Anybody ever just sin once per day? Probably not. We sin a lot. But if I could just sin just one time per day, and the rest of the day obey every time, one sin per day. I am 45 years old. So one sin per day, uh, so that's 45 years times 365 days, uh, that is 16,425 sins. That doesn't include the three months since my birthday and leap years and the fact that I don't only sin once per day and maybe the size of the sins. But the fact is, that is a finite number. It can be counted. It has limits. It has an end. No matter how much you have sinned, no matter what you have done, no matter who you have hurt, no matter what, it is a finite number. Look with me at Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. This is one of my many, I hope you have many favorite Bible verses, and one of my many favorite Bible verses. Romans 5.20 and 21. Think of your sin, how heavy it feels. I don't know what you've done. You don't necessarily know all that I've done, but God knows. But it's a finite number. Romans 5.20 says, now the law came to increase the trespass. In other words, God gave us rules so we can know that we're lawbreakers. So we know that there's a number to them. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. 
for my sin increased. And it's this big number. It's huge. Like, I can't even count that high. And it's, and it's not only the number, but the, the heinousness of my sin and what I've done. But it's still finite. But God's grace abounds more. I don't know if this is the word. I don't do the Greek very well. Is this the word Pastor David talks about, like, superabounding? I'm pretty sure this is, like, that same concept, right? There's my sin, but God's grace superabounds even more. There is more than enough grace for you and me to forgive, no matter what you have done, no matter how many times you've done it. God's grace is there as we sit under the weight of our sin, and we feel it. We can also feel the release that when we place our hands on the Savior in faith and trust Him as our Savior, it is gone. His grace abounds even more. Look at verse 21. <clears throat> so that as sin, reign, sin reigned in death, we live in that, this world that is broken by sin and death, grace also might reign through, through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus is the focus. Jesus took the price. He took the penalty, the shame, the guilt, all of it. He took it on the cross and it is gone and his grace abounds even more. The infinite God of the universe became man and died. How did how did God in three hours suffer eternity for me? I don't know. But when he said it is finished, he meant it. It is done. It is gone. And so now I can live in freedom. I don't have to live in that sin anymore. It's like someone who, who had his chains released and they still put them on. Oh yeah, I, I still, we don't need to do that. We can throw off the chains. We're still going to sin. We're still going to mess up. That doesn't mean we should sin because, hey, it's going to be forgiven. Romans 6 says, shall we continue to sin? 6 verse 1, shall we continue to sin so that grace may abound? Certainly not. And Paul uses the strongest word there in Greek. Again, I don't know the Greek very well, but I know that one. Uh, he uses the strongest word. May it never be that I sin because it's, you know, grace is cheap or free. No, that's horrible. When we've been forgiven, we should respect the one who has forgiven us and want to live to please them and glorify them. And so we should not be strive, we should strive to avoid sin, but I don't have to live in that sin anymore. And when I do sin, I can I don't know about you, but I'm thankful for 1 John 1, 9 compared to, say, Leviticus 4. Leviticus is like, you know, take the animal and hands on the head and kill the animal. And 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, say it with me, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What a blessing that is. I don't have to live in my sin anymore. The guilt of the past or even my present or my future it is gone. I can confess, and it is gone. I have right standing before God because he does not see me and my sin. He sees Jesus. Jesus' is obedience on my account every time. I can live in that freedom. So I have hope in this life that my sins are forgiven, and I don't have to live in guilt and shame anymore. Look at 1 Corinthians 15. Go to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 51. Uh, 51 through 57. It's 962, page 962, if you're using the Pew, Pew Bible. God gives us hope not only for this life, but also the next one. <clears throat> this is really cool. This is such a cool passage. It's similar to that Romans 7 one, where Paul's talking about truth and then just bursts out with praise. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 to 57. I'm just going to read it. We're not going to go through uh, we're not going to go through it verse by verse, but I just want you to hear this out loud. Paul says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, which means physical death. We will not all physically die, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, 
at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I have hope not only in this life, but in the next. I'm going to be changed. Uh, I love playing soccer and my son, again, can probably beat me most of the time. I get him once in a while, but I, I can't keep up as much. And I, I, I hurt more and longer. And, and while that's minor, uh, it's just a reminder that uh, I'm going to get a new body. We're going to be revived. We're going to be renewed and refreshed. We have hope for eternity. That's a long time. This 60, 70, 80, 90 years, more or less, that God gives us on this earth is nothing compared to forever. This time that we have in life is an opportunity to know God. When does eternal life begin? John 17, 3, Jesus says this, as he's praying for us, he says, this is eternal life, that they know you and the one whom you've sent. Eternal life is knowing God. It's knowing Jesus. Eternal life starts now. And we can know God. We can know God now in ways we won't be able to in heaven. It's getting close to noon. Anybody hungry? We're not going to know hunger in heaven. We're not going to know, and we don't even really know hunger, right? There are brothers and sisters in Christ around the world and others who know hunger way worse than we ever will. But we get to know God in our hunger, in our brokenness, in all those things that you thought of when I was sharing with you my own struggles. We get to know God in those challenges now in ways we won't be able to in heaven. We'll have glorified bodies. We won't get to, we won't have to know about, you know, hurting knees or shoulders or whatever it is. Um, so we can know God's grace in these challenges now in ways we won't be able to in heaven. In a similar way that angels long to look into salvation. And they're like, what is, it, what is it like to sin and then be forgiven? I have no idea what that means. We know God in ways now we won't be able to in heaven. And so as we understand our salvation, it fuels our thankfulness and, and our, uh, just our perspective on life. We have a different worldview. Our foundation of thankfulness is more than just, oh, I'm glad food tastes good. But that's a gift from God. Thank you, God, for dealing with my sin and making food taste good. Uh, and just whatever it is, just knowing God, that should be our foundation. He's taken care of my sin. He can take care of everything else. James 1.17 says that every good and perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. Every little thing is a gift. Food that tastes good, music, uh, children that make us smile, whatever it is, every good gift comes from God. And this is the basis for our thankfulness. Much deeper than just being thankful because, uh, because we have to go around the table and share something you're thankful for so we can get to the food. Uh, much deeper uh, than, than being thankful for things that make us feel good. This is the mindset that we need to have. I have been forgiven. I have placed my hands on the head of Christ and it is forgiven. It is gone. And I can have that evidence of, of, of the Spirit living in my life, those internal things, the fruit of the Spirit. And this is the mindset that drives the thankfulness. Look at 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians 5.16. I think we're going to wrap it up somewhere around here. 1 Thessalonians 5.16 through 18. That's page 988 if you're using a pew Bible. 1 Thessalonians 5.16 through 18. 
How in the world do we do what Paul is asking us to do here, or Paul is telling us to do here? It's because of the gospel. Because I have been forgiven, then I can do this. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18, Paul is giving these rapid-fire uh, commands as he wraps up his letter to the church in Thessalonica. It's like writing to the church in Columbus. You know, it's, this is, these are real people being written to by a real person, uh, and so they know and understand. And Paul says, Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. How in the world am I supposed to rejoice always? How am I supposed to pray without ceasing? How am I supposed to give thanks in all circumstances? I, that's impossible. And it is impossible on our own. But when we understand our salvation and trust Christ as Savior, then we can do that because he's taking care of my sin. So now I can rejoice always. Whether it's a big thing that comes up or just the car breaks down randomly and now we got to get it fixed. It happened to us this last week. Uh, I, can, I can rejoice even in those circumstances. Rejoice always. I can pray without ceasing. When the car breaks down, I can say, okay, God, how are you going to provide for this? And, and what do you want me to learn through this? Uh, how, how can I learn? Pray without ceasing means that then because my relationship with God, I will communicate with him in the, in the challenges and in the good things. Thank you, God, for—I I love watching my children smile. Uh, thank you, God, for the smile of my children. That's just a blessing. And just thank God for the good things. Uh, it drives us to be able to pray without ceasing and to give thanks in all circumstances. Thank you, God, for this food. Thank you, God, for any good gift. I can do that because I have been saved, and now I can live in that freedom and forgiveness that Christ has won for me on the cross. Uh, and this will begin to then impact my relationship with others as I become a joyful, thankful person. Eternal life starts now, and we can enjoy it starting now. Honestly, Christians should be the most joyful, content, and thankful people on the planet because of God's grace in this life and the hope we have in the next, we should be more joyful, thankful, and content than anybody else. It's not easy. But when we start with the foundation of the gospel, not any self-help tasks, but the gospel of Jesus Christ, and I have placed my faith in him and he has saved me, then I can be thankful, joyful, and content. You have special foods, traditions that you're probably looking forward to. Maybe Thanksgiving is painful for you. I don't know. There's a lot of things that have gone on in this world, but uh, you have things you're looking forward to, but your, your Thanksgiving is unique to you and your family. We as believers uh, <clears throat> should be thankful. What should drive our thankfulness? What should make our Thanksgiving different? It should be this gospel. We should be thankful all the time, uh, and, and especially with this bonus time that, that the world gives us to be thankful, reminds us each year. And so I want to challenge you to think about how thankful are you really? How thankful am I really? And what is the basis for my thankfulness? What is the basis for your thankfulness? Is it circumstances? Is it that we have enough to make us feel comfortable and to feel good? Or is it that our sins are forgiven? And every little thing on top of that is a gift from my loving Heavenly Father the relationship that we have. Man, challenge you, encourage you to make the gospel your foundation. Meditate on the gospel. Read about the gospel. Talk with each other about the gospel. Be thankful for it and let it transform your perspective on your circumstances, not just on Thursday, 
but tomorrow and Tuesday and next week and next month and as long as God, see, God sees fit to give us breath. Let's pray. God, you are so good. And it's easy to become familiar with these truths and, and they just kind of blend into the background sometimes. But Lord, is this, uh, our culture gives us the opportunity uh, to be reminded of these things. Thank you for this time in your word. Uh, and to come together. And I pray that you would help us to get it just a little bit more. Help us to see the weight of our sin, the superabounding of your grace, of your mercy, your forgiveness that is bigger than our sin, no matter what we've done. And Lord, help us to live in light of that and to be genuinely thankful. Uh, so God, help us to remember these things tomorrow when life gets real again and we go back to the office or back to our routine or whatever it is. Remind us of these facts and help us to live in this reality day by day, moment by moment. And Lord, may we want to share this with others. We have such, we have such a good gift from you in the gospel and it drives everything else. May we look to share that with others. May others see a difference and ask us and may we share that with them and want them to have what we have. Thank you for this time. Help us to worship you now in, in song and then in fellowship around the table. In Jesus' name, amen.